John 3.16 and 17, and we're looking at God's love of the world, and uh, this is Christ's uh, exposition of the gospel, basically, to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. <clears throat> this is uh, part two from this morning, and uh, I'll continue where I left off. And we were talking about the love of God, and there's a general benevolence for everybody because they're created in the image of God. God gives them all sunshine and rain and food and birds and beautiful sunsets and all that. But then there's special saving love that's only for the elect, and we've been justifying that doctrine and dealing with objections to it. And we're in the midst of that. <clears throat> now, many professing Christians have a problem with this clear biblical teaching. This is the idea that God is not trying to save everybody. Because they reason that God does not love everyone with a special saving love and does not really desire the salvation of every single person in the world, then the presentation of the gospel is not really true or sincere. But such reasoning is neither sound or true. To tell a person that if they, if they believe in Christ, they will receive eternal life is absolutely true. That's true. If you believe, you will be saved. If A, then B. The logical syllogism is sound whether one believes that God loves everyone with a saving love or not. If one possesses true faith in Christ, he most certainly will possess eternal life. Special saving love is connected with election in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. And, of course, read Romans chapter 9. And, of course, read the Gospel of John. The non-elect were not united to the Savior in his death and resurrection, and therefore do not receive regeneration, effectual calling, faith, or repentance. Faith and repentance are gifts that proceed from regeneration. Now we turn to our next major point, the scope of God's love. The scope of God's love. <clears throat> There was a lengthy period of time when God's love was only focused upon the very small nation of Israel. After the Incarnation, however, it is directed to all the nations and peoples over the entire earth. And remember, this is a radical doctrine to a Jewish audience, to Nicodemus a Pharisee. They despised the Gentiles. The Gentiles were doomed, all the Gentiles were doomed to go to hell. Now, prior to the coming of Christ, the grace and mercy of God was deliberately limited to only one family line, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, etc., and then only one nation, Israel. The Old Covenant visible church was found only within Israel. If a foreigner was exposed to divine revelation and he had faith in the true God and he had faith in the Messiah to come, what did he have to do to be part of the visible church? He had to join himself or she had to join herself to Israel. The nation of Israel. There were the Egyptians who joined Israel's exodus, and there, there were many. Rahab the harlot, and of course Ruth, the Moabitess. Your God will be my God. My people will be your people. 
when Jesus came to earth near the end of the Old Covenant era, he focused his preaching on the nation of Israel. He told the apostles, Matthew 10, 5-6, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember that touching story where a Gentile comes, Jesus is eating with the disciples. She comes. Uh, I think her daughter was sick. She, she begs him. He's all, I don't want to give... Uh, I forget exactly what he says. I don't want to give that to the... He calls the Gentiles dogs. And then she says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall into the master's table. And he, then he compliments her faith. He always intended to draw out her faith. <clears throat> but God's plan was always to save the whole world, not simply Israel. Therefore, once Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the limitations on gospel preaching were lifted. And that's what John 3.16 is all about. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And then Mark 16, 15, go into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature. And then here, Acts 1, 8, and this is all Jesus speaking. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The gracious promise to Abraham that through his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 12, 3, all the families of the earth, not simply Abraham's. And that he would be heir of the world, Romans 4.13. Through people's faith in Christ and his perfect salvation proves that God always intended that his Christ would have a worldwide dominion, a worldwide kingdom. The leaven is going to leaven the whole lump. The, the smallest of seeds, the mustard seed, will grow into the big tree and the, the birds will nest in its branches. It is all ultimately fulfilled in the consummated order, however, where the whole body of the elect from all nations is glorified to live in a fully redeemed created order. The point of the use of the word world in John 3.16 is simply to show that God's saving love is not just extended to the Jewish nation, but also to all the Gentile nations as well. And to a, to a Jew, that's a radical teaching. That's a radical teaching. Remember, Peter... <laughs> God had to uh, uh, have a vision for Peter uh, to kill and eat that which was unclean before he would preach to the Gentiles, because to him it was just radical. The idea was radical. Now, he had heard the Great Commission, and still to him it was radical. <clears throat> the stack was demonstrated visibly on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit was poured onto the church, and the men of several different nationalities heard the gospel in their own language, due to the miracle of tongues, Acts 2, 4-11. And that was prophesied from Joel. Well, let's look at the meaning of world, or cosmos, that's the Greek word cosmos, where we get the word cosmos, in John three sixteen. Now, the word world is interpreted by Arminians as proving that God has a particular saving love of all humanity, every single human being that ever lived. God loves them with a saving love, and God wants to save them. Therefore, it is wise and necessary to examine how this word is used in Scripture. 
note, for example, Human's comments. It, quote, it was not perceived that the Lord divided the world in which he speaks into two classes of men, namely into such as on account of their unbelief would be lost, and those who would be saved by their faith, and teaches that God has loved them both, and desires as much that one part of mankind should be saved as the other. That's an Arminian Lutheran quoted by Hankstenberg. And I have Lutheran commentators, and they're all Arminian, and they're all unbiblical. And... Um, Lenski, probably the most famous of the commentators, is a great commentator. Uh, his objection to Calvinism, he says, well, we can't judge God's love on what God does. We have to look at what God says. <laughs> That's what he says in his commentary here. It says he loves the world, so he, he loves every single human being in the world. That's what he says. <laughs> we can't, you know, in other words, the fact that he doesn't save everybody. We can't judge it on that. We have to judge it on what he says. That's nonsense. The word for world, cosmos, in the Greek New Testament is used in a number of different ways depending on the context. It is crucial for sound biblical interpretation that the immediate context is considered as well as what is called the analogy of scripture. In other words, we don't want to interpret the term world in a way that explicitly contradicts scripture. We should not simply import our own common English usage on the word, and there are a number of different usages in the Bible. Very briefly, number one, the word cosmos is used to describe planet Earth or the whole geographical world. In John 13, 1, our Lord speaks about departing from the world to go to the Father. What world? Planet Earth. I'm leaving this world. I'm going to the Father. I'm leaving planet Earth. In Ephesians 1, 4, Paul says that God chose us, true believers, the elect, before the foundation of the world. In other words, before the world, the earth was created. When Paul preached the gospel to the Athenians, he uses cosmos either for planet earth or for the whole cosmos, the whole universe. God who made the world and everything in it. I forgot to write down the passage. It's from Acts 17. Although we know that Christ's salvation will completely reverse all the effects of the fall upon planet Earth, see Romans 8, 19-22 and Revelation 21, 1 and following, John 3, 16 is speaking about human beings throughout the Earth, the earth who, believe, uh, who believe, not geography. So that's the first usage. Planet Earth, literally. The globe, the Earth, the cosmos. Number two. Cosmos is also used for the evil world system of fallen hum humans and demons who oppose God and the kingdom of Christ. As well as the fallen world's zitgeist thinking and sinful allurements. In John 12, 31 we read, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Uh, John 12, 31 to 32. Satan showed Jesus, Matthew 4, 8, all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. He's basically, look, this is what I control. I control the Babylonians. I control the Sumerians. I control the Canaanites. I'm in charge. Do you want this? Bow the knee to me. 1 John 2, 15 to 16. Do not love the world 
or the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father. And then 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Well, that obviously doesn't refer to Christians. And then Matthew 13, 22. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. And the word world at times is used to describe only unbelievers who hate Christ and real Christians. John 15, 18-19. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. Okay, that can't be inclusive of Christians, obviously, because Christians love Christians. If they don't, they're not Christians. Romans 3, 5 to 6, Paul speaks about God's wrath and judgment or condemnation on the world. That doesn't include Christians. This condemnation obviously excludes all true believers in Christ. A genuine believer, we are told in John 5, 24b, will not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Okay, that's number three. Now, there's some slight shades of difference there, but... <clears throat> I mean, that was number two. Here's number three. The term world is used for every single person in the whole world, except Jesus Christ who never committed sin. Paul says, Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In the first chapters of Romans, the Apostle establishes the universality of sin and guilt in the human race. Romans 3.10 There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. Universal guilt. Obviously does not apply to Jesus who never committed sin. <clears throat> Number four. Cosmos is even used as a parallel to the word Gentiles or the non-Jewish world. Look how it's used here, and this is Romans eleven twelve. For if there, that is the Jews, fall, is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? That's a Jewish, that's a Hebraistic way of speaking where the parallel is between world and Gentiles. So it's exclusive of Jews. The parallelism in verse 12 indicates that cosmos refers to Gentiles, and the same conclusion obtains later in verse 15. The world that is the object of blessing refers to the Gentiles. Number five. The term world or cosmos can refer to all true believers or those who are actually saved. In John 1, 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he's baptizing, he's by the river there, he's by the Jordan. He see, In the distance, he sees Jesus walking toward him. And this is what he says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The virtue and efficacy of Christ's sacrificial death expiates, that's, that is, removes, 
all the sin and guilt of the elect throughout the whole world, and it's not limited to the Jews. Expiation, the guilt is removed. The liability of punishment is removed. Propitiation, once the guilt's gone, God's wrath is gone. Reconciliation, once the guilt is gone and God's wrath is gone, now God can be reconciled to the sinner through Christ. To argue, as Arminians do, that Jesus shed his blood and paid for all the sins of all those who never believe and go to hell, is most absurd for a number of reasons, and they have to teach that. They have to teach that. If you believe in that Christ died for everybody without exception, that's what you believe. A, the sins of those in hell would be paid for twice, right? Once by Jesus and another by the damned. And that's not just. It's obviously unjust. The term redemption indicates that Christ dies in our place. He dies in our place, so we don't have to die. Well, if you're Arminian, that's meaningless. And B, why would God, who knows everything past, present, and future perfectly, he knows everything perfectly, he's outside of time, because he is omniscient and decrees whatsoever comes to pass, have his only begotten suffer, son suffer and die for those he knows will never believe and will certainly go to hell? Does that make sense to you? Did he die also for the sins of all those who are already dead and in hell before A.D. 30 when he came to earth and died on the cross? He died around A.D. 30, maybe 29, maybe 28. Did he die for the people that had already lived and died? Did he die for all the, the people who died in the flood that were already in hell? And the answer is, of course not. That's ridiculous. But if you're an Arminian, you have to teach that. And see. The efficacy of our Lord's death and resurrection is the source and reason why some people are regenerated, called, and called with an interior work of the Spirit, and thus receive the gifts of faith and repentance. This is why Arminian is such a dangerous heresy, because it separates the efficacy of the death from the actual, what causes people to believe. Paul's whole argument in Romans chapter 6 is, no, you're not going to live in sin anymore, you're not going to have a lifestyle of, of gross immorality anymore, like the heathen. Because you are united with Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. If you're united with Jesus, you're dead to sin. The power of sin is broken. Consequently, if Jesus really died for all without exception, then the Bible would teach universalism, which it most certainly does not. D. There are many clear passages that teach the Savior only came to save the elect or that the Lord's death actually saves and does not just make salvation possible if men do their part. Here's some passages. I'll just give you a sample. John 6, 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Okay, so if you teach a universalism, I mean a universal atonement, then you'd have to believe in a universal resurrection to glorified life. Because Jesus says, I'm not going to lose even one. I'm not losing any of them. All the Father gives me shall come to me, and every single one of those will be raised up at the last day to glorified life. 
John 10, 11, 14 to 16, and 26 to 29. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. And the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and then will be one, there will be one flock and one shepherd. <clears throat> okay, he's talking to some Pharisees. His enemies. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Wow. And that's the same gospel. So they're protected by the power of Christ himself, who's God. And they're protected by the power of God the Father, too. They're in between the hands of God the Father and the hands of Jesus Christ. Total protection. And I promise you, not one will fall away. That is not compatible with a universal atonement or a universal salvation. And here's some passages you can look up later because I'm just keeping things very brief here. Romans 4.25, uh, Matthew 1.21, Romans 8.29-39, Galatians 1.4 and 3.13, Ephesians 5.25, 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23, Titus 2.14, 1 Peter 2.24, Hebrews 1.13, 9.12, 10.14, 1 John 1.7, 4.9-10, and Revelation 5.9. Here's another one. Acts 20.28. 20, I'm keeping this as brief as possible. Here's Paul. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He died for the sheep, not the goats. He died for the church. Now, if Christ did not love or know, and the word know is used to know beforehand, means to love beforehand, essentially, or purchase all men, then he certainly did not die an atoning death for all men. When the Bible says that our Lord gave his life for the sheep, or the church, or his people, it is simple logic to conclude that he did not give his life for reprobates, or people who never believe and go to hell. Right? What is said of the, what is affirmed of the one cannot be affirmed of the other. What is explicitly affirmed of one class is implicitly denied of the other. The design of the atonement is definitely restricted. Jesus dies for those who have been given to him by the Father, for the children of God, for true believers. And this is the teaching of the fourth gospel throughout. 316, 637, and 39, and 40, and 44, and 65, 1011, and 15, and 29, 17, 6, 9, and 20, 21, and 24, etc. It is also the doctrine of the rest of Scripture. With his precious blood, Christ purchased his church, Acts 20, 28, Ephesians 5, 25, 27, his people, Matthew 1, 21, the elect, Romans 8, 32 to 35, the Calvinist, or Augustinian, whatever you prefer, it's simply a nickname for the gospel, is he who holds with a full consciousness that God the Lord in his saving operations deals not generally with mankind at large, but particularly with the individuals who are actually saved. And that's just so 
The reason Arminianism is, is so popular today is because people are born humanists. They're born with human autonomy and they're born with this idea that God exists for them and not the other way around. And that it's not fair if God doesn't try to save everybody. Well, beloved, God is all-powerful. If he wanted to save everybody, he could, do, he could save everybody, but he doesn't. Jesus died for specific individuals. And it is those united to Christ in his death and resurrection who receive the efficacy, the power, of that redemptive work through the Holy Spirit. Saving grace is saving. The Bible doesn't say Jesus died so you could help yourself be saved. He died to save you. All systems of theology that deny these great truths turn to some form of syncretism, either where the works of men are added, Roman Catholicism, the federal vision, or where faith is not a gift but is, that is purely instrumental. It's not a gift of God. We'll talk about faith, Lord willing, next week. But it's meritorious act of the free will. Faith, you're not saved through faith as a gift. You're saved because of your faith. And you have a reason to boast. You both went and saw the preacher, you and your friend Bob. Bob said, what a bunch of nonsense. I'm going to go smoke a joint. And you got down on your knees and you prayed and you became a Christian. Well, according to the Arminian, you had more wisdom than Bob. Your will was more willing than Bob's. Because according to the Arminian, you're not dead in trespasses and sins and you have the ability to believe of your own accord. Therefore, faith becomes meritorious in that system. And that's, her that's heretical. And then we look at this, God's, and I didn't know what to call this, so I just said God's love is unmerited. <clears throat> to help us understand the greatness of Christ's salvation and the scope of God's love, there are some things we need to learn about this love first. The love of God, it is the love of God that sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross. It's found solely within God himself and is not conditioned or influenced by the creation or anything within the sinner. It's the motivation is solely within God, purely within God, exclusively within God. It has nothing to do with creation. It is not conditioned by the sinner. God did not look at humanity and see something good or worthy that deserves salvation or his goodness. Moreover, contrary to Arminianism, God, didn't look, God did not look down the corridors of time and see who would have the will and wisdom to choose Christ and elect them. That's the most ridiculous doctrine I've ever heard. Who controls history? God does. Why does God know the his know history? Well, first of all, he's outside of time, but secondly, because of his decree. You know, it's like it's like there's this area of uh, of action outside of God's will, which is then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. And Arminianism logically leads to this idea, these people that teach that God is limited and he doesn't know the future, and God is limited by time and all kinds of heresy. I debated a guy who believed in that, and he died of COVID a couple of years back. This you make salvation dependent upon man, and, man ha and has man conditioning God. God has to submit to man's will. It turns faith into a kind of special meritorious work that causes God's love to flow. All such thinking is heresy. Paul says, and listen carefully, uh, Ephesians 1, 4 to 5 and 9, he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, 
in order that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, and here's the key phrase, according to the good pleasure of his will, having made known to us the mystery of his will, this is verse 9, according to the good pleasure of his will which he purposed in himself. So what is Paul emphasizing? It all has to do with God's own will. And not it has nothing to do with you. He purposed it in himself. He decided within himself who to love before the foundation of the world. Now, of course, you know, I'm speaking in human terms. God, obviously, everything is internal, eternal with him. When the Father chose a people for himself in Christ, his love acted according to the good pleasure of his will, not out not anything outside of himself. God in his love, not due to anything in the sinner, foreordained or predestined his people to sonship in Christ. In other words, and this is the point that Paul's making, God does not elect people because they deserve it, or because he saw that they would believe in Christ sometime in the future, or because he thought they were better than other people. The biblical view of God's love and election makes perfect sense when we consider the fact that the fall has rendered man incapable of believing in Christ without an interior work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. John 3, 3, Romans 8, 7 to 8, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. You should see what Luther says about Romans 8, 7 to 8, which says that natural man can't, can't, cannot do anything that pleases God. Anything. And then Luther asks, well, is choosing Christ or believing in Christ of your will, is that a good thing? Is that something that would please God? Moreover, as we keep noting, faith and repentance are gifts of God. John 3, 3 to 8, 6, 44 to 45 and 65, Ephesians 2, 8, Philippians 1, 29, 2 Peter 1, 2, that are only given to those united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Acts 13, 48 and Romans 6, 5 and following. Acts 13.48 all and There's a sermon and then it says all those who were ordained to eternal life believed. It's telling us why some believed and some did not. Some were ordained to eternal life. Others were not. It's that simple. This is not, this is not hard doctrine. This is not tough to understand. It's just that people have been taught nonsense and heresy for so many years. And then second... The love of God gives us the very best, his only begotten Son. And the Son gives us his own life. Philippians chapter 2, he's up there in heaven. He leaves it all behind to be born in a filthy major in Bethlehem. To live a life of rejection, a life of humiliation, to be rejected by his people, to be tortured, to die on the cross, a sacrificial death. Romans 5.8 God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, how shall he not with, with him also freely give us all things? And You know, Paul writing, if you read Romans 8, Paul's strengthening the faith of Christians. Because, you know, it's super, super easy if you're a dedicated Christian to doubt your salvation every day. Why? Because we, we're sinners. We have to fight the flesh. We think in pure thoughts. We have all kinds of, you know, we're far from perfect. Now, certainly we 
we have to be covenantally faithful. But I'm just saying, it's easy to doubt your salvation. Paul is strengthening the faith of these Christians. God loves you, and he's not going to let you down. He's going to give you everything you need. And Luther says this, quote, His son, who is as great as himself, this is an eternally incomprehensible gift. This love towards undeserving sinners distinguishes biblical Christianity from all other religions. There's nothing like biblical Christianity. Nothing. In non-Christian religions, men gain God's favor through good works or some kind of meditative technique. In all the cults, Unitarianism, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Way International, all the Unitarian cults and all the cults that deny the divinity of Christ, they all teach salvation by good works. They do. And then you got Judaism, and you got Islam, which basically says... Tell God you're sorry, turn over a new leaf, lead, lead a, try to live a good life, and you'll be saved. There's no atonement. There's no expiation of sin. There's no propitiation of sin. There's no reconciliation with God. It's all up to you. And then, of course, there's the Eastern mysticism religions. George Harrison, the Hare Krishnas, Maharishi Yogi, and all these things. Paramahansa Yogananda, which is, is that everything is God and you need to meditate and do techniques to get to the, back to the Samadhi, cosmic bliss, or nirvana. All nonsense. But the true and living God loves those who are most unfavorable, most unlovable. People think, well, I'll try to earn God's love or favor by becoming lovely, by becoming favorable, by becoming a good person. That's not how it works. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The amazing love can be seen in his grace to sinners. What does grace mean? It's an unmerited favor, an undeserved, unmerited favor to those who in fact deserve wrath. It's favor to those who deserve the exact opposite. And his mercy. Mercy takes pity upon those who deserve judgment in hell and saves them. People imagine that they can be reconciled to God by making themselves good enough or worthy of his attention. But scripture everywhere exalts his infinite love which looks at Christ's blood and merits so that we are treated with pure grace and mercy in Christ. In Christ. And I don't care how good of a Christian you are. I don't care if you're John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards. You're still a sinner. You sin every day. We are saved because the love of God sent us His only begotten Son. Hence, it follows that our only hope of eternal salvation is to look at Christ by faith. There is and there can never be a greater gift than Jesus of Nazareth. It's the greatest gift in all history. It's the most important thing in all history, his saving work. This fact is a foundation of our faith that God's love is within himself and is not determined by our works, which compared to God's infinite holiness and righteousness are nothing but filthy, stinking, disgusting rags. Rags for the menstrual cycle, rags that people use to wipe themselves. That's what the Bible says. That's what our good works are compared to. Stuff that you wouldn't be, want to be within 10 feet of. That's what God compares our good works to. That's how holy God is. 
Is your faith weak? Or do you have doubts? Then look to the infinite love of God that sent Jesus to the cross. That's all part of the object of our faith. Yes, we're saved by the work of Christ. But why did Christ come? God's love. So we're learning about God's love. Now, I, I ran out of material, so this might be kind of short, but... <clears throat> This is extremely important stuff. The natural tendency of all human beings due to sin, due to the fact that we're born depraved, is to think that we need to uh, make ourselves pleasing to God and he'll accept us. That doesn't work. Luke 17. Even our best works are tainted with sin. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that I regard all of my good works, and here's this guy who was super religious his whole life, a dedicated Pharisee, I regal, regard them all as a pile of stinking rubbish that I may own Christ. You can't, the hand that reaches out to cling to Christ, the hand of faith that reaches out and, and grasps Christ in the cross, that bloody cross and that empty tomb, must be an empty hand. For once you add your own works, no matter how insignificant, you can't obtain Christ. Faith has to be the alone instrument that lays hold of Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. What an amazing thing that you love the unlovely. You had mercy on us. You had grace upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to understand your love, Lord, to live in terms of it. And Lord, we're truly sorry that we let you down, that we don't live as we ought to. We ask that you'd bend our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause us to be covenantally faithful every day, to be more dedicated to you, to your Son, knowing what you that you sent him to us, and you didn't have to, knowing that he gave his own life for us, in our place. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>